0: Okay, go to Hebrews chapter 2 today. We're continuing in our series. This is session number 3 in the series entitled Our Great Salvation. We derive that title from this particular verse, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 3. And I'm going I'm to read it from the Amplified Classic. And then I'm going to make several comments about this verse. The writer of Hebrews writes, how shall we escape... Appropriate retribution if we neglect or refuse to pay attention to such a great salvation as is now offered to us. Let me get drift past forever. Uh, the New Living Translation says, "If we are indifferent to this great salvation." The Passion Bible says, "If we despise this great salvation." In other words, what he's talking about is the fact that this great salvation has to be seized it has to be laid hold of it's not automatic so we're going to find out that uh, uh, some things today about this great salvation of that I think you'll enjoy for it was declared at first by the Lord himself and then it was confirmed to us and proved to be real and genuine by those who personally heard him speak now what what is what is the writer of Hebrews saying in a nutshell? That there is no plan B. No plan B. It's either salvation or nothing. In other words, I've heard a lot of people say that there are many ways, many roads to salvation. That's not true. In Acts chapter 4, verse 12, it says, Neither is there salvation in any other. There is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. The only name that can bring salvation to you, deliverance from the penalty and power of sin, is the name of Jesus. Speaking to Thomas in John chapter 14 and verse 6, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man, and when he said no man, he means no man cometh unto the Father but by me. So he's saying that in this particular passage, that this great salvation only comes through the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so the most important decision we ever make in our entire lives is to either choose to accept or reject the saving sacrifice of Jesus Christ, because that's the decision that determines whether we are going to spend eternity in heaven or hell. So I want you to see that this is is a real choice everybody has to make. And when you die, it's too late. You know, you can't make that choice then. But I want us to talk about the B part of this verse today. And that is, it says, for it, this this great salvation, this great uh, salvation of ours, the Bible says, was declared at first by the Lord himself, and it was confirmed to us, and this is the phrase I'm looking at. It proved to be real and genuine to those who heard him speak. That little phrase, it proved to be real and genuine. We, we could substitute the term that it proved in our personal experience to be real and genuine. Now, their salvation is something that is to be experienced On a personal level. And I I use that word experience because I I, I think it is a key to our understanding about salvation. You know, I want to give an example. Psalms chapter 34 is a great psalm and it's written during David's lowest point in life. Uh, He was alone. He had to part company with Jonathan, his covenant friend. He was being chased by King Saul and all of Saul's paid assassins. And in this psalm, he magnifies the goodness of God. Listen to what he says. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul shall make her boast in the Lord. The humble shall hear thereof and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me, David writes, and let us exalt. His name together. I sought the Lord, and he heard me and delivered me from all my fears. They looked upon him and were lightened, and their faces were not ashamed. And the poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all of his troubles. The angel of the Lord encampeth round about them that fear him and delivereth them. Oh, taste and see. That the Lord is what? Good. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Now, we can have that to be equivalent to they proved that this salvation was real and genuine. So, when you taste and see, you are proving in your own life's experience that this great salvation of ours is powerful. Powerful and dynamic in its working. So, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man that trusteth in him. Now the message Bible says, open your mouth and taste. Open your eyes and see how good God is. Blessed are you who run to Him. The Passion Translation says, drink deeply of the pleasures of this God. Experience for yourselves the joyous mercies he gives to all who turn to hide themselves in him. And so I think, it's, I think it's vitally important that each one of us taste and see. See, I can't taste for you and I can't see for you. Only you can taste for yourself yourself. And only you can see for yourself that this great salvation of ours, it is good, and it is genuine, and it is powerful. Now, think about this. Taste and see that the Lord is what? He's good. You now, it's amazing to me that when I study the Bible over and over and over again, we find that it magnifies the goodness of God. 185 times just in Psalms. The Bible says that the Lord is good. Here's one Psalms 119 verse 68. It says that thou art good and doest good. Teach me thy statutes. Now notice what he's saying in this verse. You are good and you do good. That means that the goodness of God is expressed in two ways. It's expressed in his nature and character that is, God is good in and of Himself. And then He shows or demonstrates that goodness in His works that He performs among the children of men. Now, we could define the goodness of God in this way He is morally excellent, He is extraordinarily beautiful, He is extravagantly generous, and He is overwhelmingly kind. So, think about it. God is good in and of Himself because that's His nature. That's His character. He is a good God. And we are to taste and see that He's good. And then He is good in that He expresses His goodness by His works. Psalms 100 verse 5 says, "...for the Lord is good, His mercy is everlasting, and His truth endureth to all generations." First Chronicles chapter 16, verse 34 says, Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His mercy endures forever. And you're going to find over and over and over and over again in the Bible, that phrase is used for God is good and his mercy endures forever. Psalms chapter 145, verse nine says that the Lord is good to all. Think about that. The Lord is good to all, and His mercies are over His tender works. Think about that. That His mercies are over His tender works. You know, Psalms 107 is an amazing psalm. I want you to turn there with me. I'm going to read from Psalms chapter 107 in the King James Version. And I, I just want to call your attention to something that the 107th Psalm declares. Psalms 107 and it says this beginning in verse 1 it says oh give thanks unto the Lord for what he is good now the word thanks there is the word Hebrew word yadah y-a-d-a-h and it means uh, in the Hebrew language it means to revere or to laud but it, it, it says to revere or worship with the open hand See, that's why we lift our hands in worship as a form of magnifying God. So it says, "Oh, give thanks unto the Lord, for He is good, for His mercy endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom He hath redeemed from the hand of the enemy, and gather them out of the lands from the east and the west and the north and the south, They wandered in the wilderness in a solitary way. They found no city to dwell in. Hungry and thirsty, their soul fainted in them. And then they cried unto the Lord in their trouble, and He delivered them out of their distresses. That is so important because this psalm repeats itself four times. And in every case, not right here in verse 6, also in verse uh, Thirteen, nineteen, 19 and verse 28, this same cycle repeats itself that they cried unto the Lord in their trouble and he delivered them out of their distresses. That's important. Notice it says that his tender mercies are over all of his works. So when God expresses tender mercy by delivering people, it is God himself showing up on the scene to redeem those who are in bondage. So he says, and he led them forth by the right way that they might go to a city of habitation. Oh, oh, that men would praise the Lord for his what? Goodness, his goodness. And for his wonderful works to the children of men. And again, that that verse is four times in this cycle here in verse eight. Uh, Also in verse 15, 21 and verse 31, we have this exact same scenario that he talks about how that men should praise the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of men. So his goodness is so vital to our spiritual health and it's so vital to our living free lives. Psalms 31, 19 says this, Oh, uh, how great is thy goodness, which thou hast, you have laid up or stored up for, not from, but for them that fear thee, which thou hast wrought for them that trust in thee before the sons of men. Thou shalt hide them. This is a great promise. Thou shalt hide them in the secret of thy presence from the pride of men. Or the New Living Translation says, "Safe from those who conspire against you." Or the Amplified Bible says that He's going to hide us in the secret of His presence from the plots of men. And then it says, "Thou shalt keep them secretly in a pavilion." From the strife of tongues or from the accusations and brutal insults of evil men, the Passion Bible says. So the goodness of God provides a shelter for us. A habitation from evil and wicked men and evil and wicked things. He shelters us and it is a product of His goodness. His goodness. So we're going to find that the goodness of God is a powerful, powerful thing. Now, let me give you two examples of this. Matthew chapter 7, verse 11 says this. This is written in the King James Version. If thou then being evil or imperfect, according to the Passion Trans, if you being evil or imperfect, if you know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more? Shall your father give good things to them that ask him. Notice that he only has good things to give. Why? Because that's his nature. He says if you in comparison to God are evil or imperfect and yet you know how to give good things to your children just think how much more God himself is going to give good things to them that ask him. Why? Because he is good. That's his nature, to be good. How about another one? How about over in James chapter 1, verse 17? Every good gift, I'm reading from the Amplified Classic, every good gift and every perfect gift, every free, large, and full gift is from above. It comes down from the Father of all that gives light. In the shining of whom there could be no variation, no rising or setting, and no shadow cast by his turning as in an eclipse. The Passion Translation says it this way. Every gift God gives freely, gives us, is good and perfect. Every gift, every good gift that God gives us is good and perfect, streaming down From the Father of lights, who shines from the heavens with no no hidden shadow or darkness, and is never subject to change. Now, what is he saying? Notice he says that in Matthew chapter 7, he says the very same thing. Here again in James chapter 1, verse 17, he says that God is so fixed in his goodness that there is no shadow cast when he turns because he doesn't turn. He is fixed. Now think about that. Think about him. Remember, every good and perfect gift comes down from our good Father in heaven. So in other words, he gives good gifts because his nature is that of being good. Uh, I love this. The clear uh, uh, implication here. Is there is that there is nothing that you will find wrong with God. Nothing in Him that can even remotely appear to be evil hiding. Nothing in Him that could even be remotely said that evil is hiding. The mirror translation says there is no hint of a hidden agenda. The Message Bible says that there is nothing deceitful in God, nothing two-faced, nothing fickle. Now, we all all know what being two-faced is. It means that you're one way one minute with some people, and then you're another way another minute with other people. You're two-faced. The word fickle, I looked it up in the Western's dictionary, it means to be deceitful, to be inconstant. To be marked by a lack of steadfastness, or to be erratic in changeableness. that you 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 can't be trustworthy. You're you're not stable. You're not fixed. You're not sure. And so, because of that, you you're minded one way one moment, and minded another way another. But notice that he says that every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights, and there is no varying. He is always, always, always good. Now, I was studying yesterday. And I had this thought: anybody ever seen Apollo thirteen, the movie? Tom Hanks plays the uh, plays the role of uh, uh, Jim Lowell and remember, they were on their way to the moon, and they had an oxygen container explode. And they had to scrap their trip, barely made it back to to, uh, Earth alive. But in this, Tom Hanks, quoting from Jim Law, says this, Houston, we have a problem. We have a problem. And what I want to say today is, church, we have a problem. Now, our problem is not an exploding oxygen tank. But our problem is that there are many in the body of Christ who do not believe that God is good all the time. I want you to think about it. Think that. I want you to ponder what, what I'm saying. There are many in the church who do not believe that God is good. Remember Psalms 34:8. O oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. So I, I think that oftentimes we fail To take into consideration that Satan works overtime to undermine our confidence in the goodness of God. And so you might be duplicitous. That means that you're minded one way, one moment God is good, and then another moment God is my problem. He's the source of my misery and my pain. So you need to get your head on straight and be single-minded in the fact that God is good all the time. Okay, that's all right. Let's say, so God is good all the time. And when we read the body of evidence in the Bible, the Old and New Testament, and over and over and over and over and over again, it says that God is good. See, here it says that there is no evil to be found in him. No evil, that there is nothing in him that gives us even a hint of him being minded any way other than good. Other than good. So I think it's so important that we ourselves come to terms with the goodness of God. Now, way back in the very beginning in the book of Genesis chapter 3, Satan, the first thing he did was to, to undermine the goodness of God in, in the thought life of Eve and Adam. Now, I want you to go with me to Genesis chapter 3. We'll put it up. For you, Genesis chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. It says, Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast in the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? Now, we know that over in Genesis chapter 2, verse 16, the Bible says, Then the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat thereof, you will surely die. The Hebrew language says in dying you shall die. Now we know now that when they ate of that forbidden fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, they didn't fall over dead. But what happened? They died spiritually. They died on the inside. So I want you to see that exactly what God said would happen, did happen. But notice that Satan came to directly challenge the Word of God. And that is exactly what he does today. That's his method of operation. He comes to challenge God's word that you've hidden in your heart to cause you to step back and to give pause and to doubt whether what God said is true or not. Hath God said, you shall not eat of every uh, tree of the garden. And the woman said to the serpent, well, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree, which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it lest you die. Well, God didn't say touch it, but that's anyway, that, that was what she said. But listen to this. Then the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die so what did he do he directly countermanded the word of god to adam and eve and that's how satan works today he comes to undermine he comes to undermine our confidence in the word of god now here's two things that i think are key for us to understand that is that john identified the serpent here in genesis chapter 3 as Satan in Revelation chapter 12, verse nine, and Revelation 20, verse two, uh, Paul identified the serpent as Satan in 2 Corinthians, chapter 11, verse three. Now, I want to kind of paraphrase this second phrase when the serpent said, "You shall not surely die." Now I want to say it this way: Is it true? That God has restricted you from the delights of the garden. This is not like one who is truly good and kind. Notice that Satan came to undermine their confidence in how good God was. Now, there's he said, in essence, what Satan was saying is that God is a withholder, He's withholding something good from you. He knows that in the day that you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that you'll be like God. You'll be like him. So I want you to see that God restricted them from the the, the, uh, tree of the knowledge of good and evil for their own sake, for their own good. It was never the will of God that they would disobey. But notice that in the midst of this, God undermined their ability to trust in God. So I want you to see that when you trust in God's goodness, never let Satan come to undermine that somehow God is withholding healing, blessing, peace, wisdom, whatever it is that you need. God is not the withholder. And so we're going to see this next Sunday uh, in stark contrast that when because of his goodness, he gives he has a good heart and an open hand toward each and every one of us. Amen. Praise God. Okay, give the Lord a shout this morning, would you? And uh, is coming.